I call myself a cafeteria Jew. It's like you pick what works for you from the buffet. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Today on Schmaltzy, cookbook author Adina Sussman. Adina is the co-author of 14 books and the author of Sababa, Fresh Sunny Flavors from My Israeli Kitchen, which was named one of the best cookbooks by the New York Times in 2019. Originally from the Bay Area, today she lives in Tel Aviv with her husband Jay. Here's Adina from the Schmaltzy stage at the New York City Wine and Food Festival. In a lot of ways, I grew up your average suburban Palo Alto kid in California in the 1970s. I had the tough skin jeans, we had the station wagon with the wood panels on the sides and the 8-track cassette, and I had the massive crush on David Cassidy. But when you looked on the inside, we were actually quite different. We were some of the few Orthodox Jews, not only in our neighborhood, but in Palo Alto and in Northern California altogether. That meant that we kept a kosher kitchen, complete with two sinks and two sponges and two sets of dishes. My sister and I went to a private Jewish school where half of our day was dedicated to religious studies, and I can still see the marks on my father's arm from when he unwrapped the tefillin or the leather straps that he used to put on at the local synagogue every morning. Now, being Orthodox meant that we had a lot of rules to follow. So come Friday afternoon, Our parents would call us in from playing with the neighborhood kids, and we'd leave them in their flip-flops and shorts and go in and shower and put on our Shabbat dresses. And once we lit the Shabbat candles, we were essentially excommunicated from the neighborhood for the next 24 hours. It meant no television, no spending money, no phone, and definitely no car. So invariably on Saturday, when we'd be walking to synagogue in our Shabbat finery, some stranger would pull over his car on the side of the road, roll down the window, have a look at my family and say, dudes, did your car break down? (laughs) And then there were those Chuck E. Cheese birthday parties of my youth, which for me were pure, sheer torture. While everybody else was eating this delicious smelling and looking pizza, I had a different menu for the party. It was the tuna on wheat that my mom had prepared for me and wrapped in a little plastic sandwich baggie. And I think I even knew back then that I didn't want to separate myself from the world when it came to food. I really wanted to connect with other people and explore one bite at a time. Now, a lot of the differences that my family had centered around food and around kosher cheese for some reason. We didn't eat unkosher cheese because it contained animal reddit. And the few Orthodox Jews in Palo Alto and those around Northern California really wanted this product, but it was something that they had a really hard time getting their hands on. So my dad somehow became a bi-coastal pack mule. Every time he would go to New York on a business trip, he would load up his giant leather suitcase with kosher cheese, and he'd drag it all the way across the country. And mind you, this was long before the days of roller bag suitcases. So one day in the airport, disaster struck, and my dad was pulling the luggage off of the carousel, and the entire suitcase busted open on the floor of San Francisco International Airport, 
cheese went tumbling everywhere, and the DEA agents came right over to my dad, and they were convinced that there was something far more nefarious in that suitcase than cheese. So my dad showed up at home later that night. He looked at my mom. He threw the suitcase on the floor, and he said, that's it, Steffi. I'm done. No more schlepping. So within a couple of weeks, my parents did what every sane set of parents would do. They decided that they were going to open a kosher cheese shop in our garage. So they bought a couple of avocado-colored refrigerators from Sears. They had some receipt pads printed up in triplicate with a snazzy new logo for S&S Cheese, which stood for Stan and Steffi's Cheese. And we were ready to go except for the cheese itself. And then a couple of weeks later, a giant 14-wheeler truck came rolling down our tiny suburban street, which was so small that we didn't even have sidewalks. And the driver hopped out of the cab and he hoisted me up and I honked that horn as loud as I could while he was unloading box after box of cheese onto a dolly and rolling it into our garage. And those neighborhood kids came creeping out of their houses and looking at us and wondering what was going on. And for once, we were super different, but it was a good thing. Okay, so now we were in business. And people started streaming in from all over Northern California to see what SNS Cheese had to offer. And my parents worked full time, so sometimes my sister and I would operate the shop by ourselves with little pencils behind our ears. People would ring the door and we'd usher them in and we'd help them parse the differences between mozzarella and Munster and Parmesan cheese. And then we'd help them wrap up their 108 slice stacks of neon orange American cheese in brown paper bags and send them on their way. And I gotta say, it felt really good. We were sort of the kosher kitchen saviors of Palo Alto. We were fulfilling lasagna dreams and fondue fantasies and grilled cheese aspirations for the huddled masses just yearning to be cheesy. It also helped us fulfill some dreams of our own. After school, my sister and I would drab, grab a package of mozzarella and grate it onto Thomas's English muffins with tomato sauce from a can, and we'd have the most incredible toaster oven pizzas you could ever imagine. And they weren't exactly Chuck E. Cheese level, but if we ate them while we were listening to Olivia Newton-John, we almost felt too cool for shul. <laughs> All right, so then my grandmother would come to visit, and that also enabled us to make the incredible blintzes that my dad had enjoyed as a kid at the Ratner's Dairy Restaurant in the Lower East Side, and she taught my mom how to make them. And instead of those frozen golden brand blintzes where you had to mask the taste with applesauce and sour cream, we had her amazing homemade crepes filled with either a savior or a sweet filling, and I gotta say all was right in the world for a while. So. Then that went on for a few years, but then things in Palo Alto kind of started to change. There were more Orthodox people, and a little store even opened up in our neighborhood called Kosher Corner. And they had all kinds of things that people wanted to eat, including cheese. So after a seven or eight year run of what I'm sure was probably the most money losing business in the history of Northern California, my parents closed down SNS Cheese. It simply wasn't needed anymore. And being Orthodox wasn't so much of an outsider's proposition. But at the same time, I was starting to feel like a bit of an outsider in my own community. That desire that it always had to taste the world one bite at a time was only getting stronger. And I was starting to test the edges of my Orthodox observance. Now, this was around the time that I went off to Boston University for college. And I was still keeping kosher, but I went out to dinner one night 
with all my friends, and they invited me to go to Pizzeria Uno. So we sat down, and they all ordered these pies, and I thought, I'll order a salad like I always do. And that lasted a little while until the pizzas came to the table. So I looked to the left, and I looked to the right, and I looked up, and I kind of asked, what would happen if I ate these pizzas? Like, would a, would a big booming voice in a Bostonian accent say, thou shalt not eat those pizzas? <laughs> but I just kind of shrugged and I took a bite. And I got to tell you, it was truly the most delicious thing I had ever tasted in my life. It was cheesy and salty and junky and gooey and stretchy. And there were little puddles of mozzarella oil mixing up with the tomato sauce. And it lived up to every expectation that I could have had. But at that moment, I realized two really important things. One, that I was going down a culinary path from which it was gonna be really hard to return. And two, I was gonna to have to tell my family that I was no longer kosher. And I really worried that by sharing this information that I was gonna be separating myself from a huge part of the identity that had bonded my family together for such a long time. So I used to go home and I couldn't bring myself to tell them. And I worried that with every secret meal, just this anxiety would just grow larger and larger. But finally, one day, I was home in Palo Alto as a full-grown adult, and as often happens to those of us who go to visit our parents, I found myself strapped into the backseat of the car with my parents strapped into the front, driving down the streets of Palo Alto, and I just decided to blurt it out. Hey, mom and dad, guess what? I'm not really kosher anymore. And there was a really, really long and really awkward silence. But on the plus side, nobody opened the door and pushed me out of the car while it was still moving. I think maybe the reason the ceiling didn't fall on that day is because my mom actually did not grow up Orthodox, and she became kosher when she met and married my father. And she actually used to tell us that before she became kosher, her favorite meal was lobster and drawn butter every year on her birthday. <laughs> So perhaps instinctively, my mother actually realized that she had just made a decision in one direction, and I was just making a decision in another. And, you know, I guess I realized that my family, I should have known that my family would accept me for exactly who I was, because when I think about it, they were the ones who taught me how to be different in the first place. Thank you very much. Adina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. So you're affectionately known as Queen of the Israeli Shook these days. <laughs> Do you think you have a special connection to the vendors because of your garage cheese selling days? <laughs> I definitely uh, have empathy and sympathy for retail food purveyors. <laughs> now, I should clarify that, you know, our business was set up to lose money. It obviously wasn't a full-time store. You know, my parents really did it as a community service. And, you know, my father's a physicist and my mother uh, taught English as a second language. So, you know, there were other things going on, but this was a huge part of our life. And yes, I think ever since then, and probably just baked into my DNA um, as a Jewish person is a love of food and a connection to it in all in all forms. Well, looking back on your childhood now as a 
few years have passed. Do you, in a sense, feel grateful for the family time that, you know, you were in essence forced to have by observing Shabbat, even though, you know, at the time it felt like you were missing out? Oh, for sure. I mean, I wouldn't trade the way I was raised for anything. You know, now in 2021, these concepts of unplugging and family dinner and undivided attention of your parents are sort of newly relevant uh, in, you know, as we're all super distracted by social media and just pulled in a million directions. And I grew up having the advantage of having my parents' undivided attention for 24 hours and learning how to spend time by myself reading. I read every book in our house probably by the time I was 12, things that were highly inappropriate for my age, but my parents never put a limit on anything that I read. We didn't watch a lot of TV in the house, but my mom said as long as you can read it, you're allowed to read it. So I remember working my way through like Isaac Bashev's Singer, uh, you know, probably at age 11 and reading some really racy and scandalous things, you know, in my preteens and sort of feeling very excited and privileged to read them. Um, and yes, definitely all the Shabbat songs that I know, all the foods that my mother made that are just so resonant with me and um, that I'm actually putting uh, in my upcoming book, which is all about the foods of Shabbat. So those were the recipes that I developed first and tried to recreate are those things that we ate every week and, you know, lighting Shabbat candles. Um, interestingly, just right after COVID was kind of officially over here, one of the first things I did was take my mother's uh, can silver candlesticks that I inherited from her that were in a bit of disrepair and took them to a repair person to polish and sort of rejuvenate because I have been interested in lighting them myself now. And, you know, they, those, those kind of physical artifacts and also just all of those memories are definitely things that I, I cherish and would not, would not trade for anything. Can you give us like a little preview of, of Steffi's menu, <laughs> like what her classic Friday night menu was? Sure. My mother used to make Every Shabbat, she made the most delicious and simple roast chicken, but it was a little different than everyone else's. She she used cut up chicken and she would slice a lot of onions really thin and uh, lay them in a Pyrex dish, tossed in a little bit of vegetable oil, never olive oil. <laughs> and then she would lay the chicken on top and sprinkle just a raft of dried spices on top of the chicken, salt, pepper, paprika, onion powder, garlic powder. And it almost made this coating like it cloaked the chicken and then she would roast it in the oven and the drippings from the chicken would soak into the onions and you'd have these schmaltzy thin soft caramelized onions and then you'd have this chicken with all this amazing flavor my mom also made fabulous potato kugel but she also made a vegetable kugel uh, you know we lived in northern california and um, she made a really delicious uh, kugel with yellow and green zucchini and carrots and onions and different tangles of long strands of vegetables that she would toss like with a little bit of oil and a, a drop of flour or something and, and bake it like a kugel. And it was very light and delicious. And it's also really, really good cold, like in a sandwich the next day. Okay. <laughs> We're going to shift to something very important that I want to okay. ask you about. Sure. Pizzeria Uno. <laughs> How do you think about that moment in college at Pizzeria Uno when you decided to eat the pizza? Um, I think it was um, it was a moment of feeling out my 
adulthood and my independence and maturity, like living far away from my family and focusing really on something that I desired without thinking about the consequences or uh, any preconditioning that I had had or just sort of trying to focus on like what I wanted. I, I thought it was interesting because no one around me was even remotely phased by what was happening. And for me, it was such a thunderous moment. (laughs) And, you know, that often happens, I think, when you feel like an outsider in life that, you know, things are going on for you internally. You're having thoughts and emotions that are so powerful, but the rest of the world is just operating as per usual. And so it can be very dissonant um, because you have a lot going on in your own mind. So I think it was a very personal moment and intimate moment with myself and actually just a real growth moment when where I was like really in touch with a lot of desires and sensations and emotions um, actually. Do you remember the conversation that you had with yourself? Uh, I think it was more just um, I'm doing this and what's what what will happen you know I, I wasn't deeply spiritual and religious person at that point and probably never. Like I enjoyed a lot of the Orthodox religious practice, but I didn't have a very punitive view of God, whether she exists or not. So it wasn't like I was worried that I was going to be struck down, smote on the floor of the restaurant, but it was more just the idea that I was breaking from a family with from with whom I had been very close. And fortunately, I have managed to stay incredibly close to. And all my family, my immediate family is still Orthodox. I love how you described how it was really like your private moment because depending on how well your friends knew you or even, you know, if they did or they didn't, like all you're Mm -hmm. doing is being a college kid eating a pizza. And for you, it's such a momentous moment that those few seconds of like when you're taking your first bite, but for everyone else, it's just another dinner out. Totally. I mean, I would imagine that someone who came from a completely secular religious background, if they went to an Orthodox Shabbat dinner, might be having the same kind of internal wave of emotion that I had. You know, it's just it's all about, I think, feeling difference and also feeling your uniqueness at the same time. I think growing up the way that I did makes me like empathetic towards difference in others and tolerant of different practices or non-practices and like accepting of people where they are because I think that's really just all we all want is to be accepted and embraced and loved for whomever we are where we are in our lives so you know going deep there but it's uh I think that that you know that's really the at the heart of I think what what Judaism in religion is about. So came full circle in a way. I think when you have a moment to reflect and look back at some of these experiences, you understand how much they shaped you. And it sounds like you're very grateful for that. For sure. For sure. And, you know, having the memory, my mother passed away, unfortunately, quite young and having, I think, having the kind of uh, ritualistic life that we had with all of the Shabbats and holidays 
and occasions that were built into our life, like I have a lot more memories than I might have had had we not had that lifestyle. And also, you know, a lot of the the things that my mom did because she was part of the community are things that really touched a lot of people. And I'm and people in all streams of Jew- Judaism and in all religions can have the same impact and do the same kind of mitzvot or good deeds. But it was something that she definitely excelled at. And you know, I still pick and choose. You know, I call myself a cafeteria Jew. It's like you pick what works for you from you picks what works for you from the from the buffet. Wait, did and, you, you know, coin I'm, that phrase yourself? No, I wish. Okay. I love I wish, it. And I, nor did I coin the uh, Martha Jewert, which is another good one. From this point on, to me, you are Martha Jewert. You will never you. be anything what else. What a compliment. <laughs> Today, you're working as a recipe developer, a cookbook author in Tel Aviv. When I heard your story, it merely made me think about what is influencing the recipes that you're developing and and what you're putting in cookbooks. And, you know, this this flavor memory of Pizzeria Uno seems so strong. (laughs) Um, Do you think it's ever influenced any of the recipes you've written? I would say my recipes are less influenced by it, but my personal late night binges are perhaps more, you know, I mean, you can't get an English muffin in Tel Aviv, but there's no iteration of an English muffin pizza that I have not made in my life. And I now replace it with mini pitas, you know, and so so it could be leftover pasta sauce or some sauce from shakshuka even with some kind of cheese, just like broiled in a high oven until really crispy and bubbly and verging on burnt, you know, um, is like definitely a sweet spot for me in my snacking. <laughs> when you said English muffin pizza in the story, I was like, wow, that I grew up in New York and that. Yeah. But an English muffin pizza was like on the menu, I would say in our house, at least <laughs> once a week. Yes. Like, and I remember exactly what it was. It was the cut English muffin. It was Progresso mm-hmm. tomato sauce from the jar. Yes. And, and it was the shredded <laughs> and it was a shredded mozzarella. And it was like, right. I, I couldn't remember a week that would go by <laughs> without having that. And then so I see it's it's permeated both coasts. Oh, yeah. I think it's, you know, I mean, in our case... The cheese itself varied. I mean, oftentimes it was American cheese, you know, on there, which I'm not mad at. And, um, you know, I mean, I think if you close your eyes, the orange and the white taste the same. But in my mind, the orange tastes way better. So, Do I see an English muffin pizza cookbook in your future? I mean, you'd never say never. You heard it here first. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I need to ask this. We're friends, right, Adina? (laughs) Yes, Amanda. <laughs> Chrissy Teigen. You yes. are her longtime cookbook collaborator and sometimes house guest. Why, <laughs> why do you think you two work so well together? And what has she taught you about food? I think we get along uh, I, I, as, as co-inhabitants of a home because we have similar ideas about hosting. Like I was raised in a home where the best way you can host someone is to let them make themselves at home, not to overly wait on them, not to fuss over them, let them get their own stuff from the fridge, let them relax. Don't, if they leave their shoes on the floor, don't 
pick them up right away and throw them in their room. Let let them feel like they're part of your house. And from the first minute that I arrived at Chrissy's house, I felt very at home. Um, and, you know, her mom, Pepper, who is now a star in her own right and just wrote her own Thai cookbook, the first meal I actually ever had at Chrissy's home was a meal cooked by Pepper because Chrissy and John were coming back from a trip. And I got there at 10 at night and they were arriving the next morning. But Pepper, who lives with them, made me like a full Thai dinner. That's the kind of TLC you get in Chrissy and John's house. And they're just fun and funny. And I love Chrissy. I mean, Chrissy is one of the funniest people in the world. So just being around her is, I mean, it's not only about laughing because, you know, a lot of profound things happen when you spend months and months with somebody and life things happen to both of us. And, you know, we truly are friends. But on from a food perspective, I mean, you know, I think she said that we're like sober stoners. Like <laughs> what, like what, if either of us has a food desire, like we just enable the other one to make it happen. So like there's no idea that's too crazy for a recipe to try. There's no lily that can't be gilded more. And, you know, at the beginning of our process, you know, the first book was quite indulgent as far as butter, cream, bacon, cheese, fat. And, you know, New York Times number one bestseller can't lie. You know, people responded well to it. But over time, as we've both grown and changed food wise, I think what we do always is I what I always try to do is come at the process of co-authoring and co and co-developing, which is with open eyes, always in a position of learning, which I would say is something that I definitely learned uh, picked up from my Jewish background. Yeah, it's a really it's a really gratifying relationship, and I think that you know what's interesting is we're such different people, but we actually have very similar food brains, and I think that you know food brains can meet and sort of have kismet things go on regardless of your background, your religion, your age, your culture. Chrissy's next book comes out in October and I think it's our best one yet, her best one yet. Okay, so let me keep track. We have Chrissy's book coming out in Mm -hmm. October. We have your Shabbat book that you're working on and then a Gazoz book. Tell us about that. So the Gazoz book is coming out uh, sometime later in May. I worked with Benny Briga, who is the creator and proprietor of a lovely uh, small coffee and beverage shop in South Tel Aviv called Cafe Levinsky. Um, And Benny has sort of taken the old world uh, cultures of fermentation and seltzer, which is an extremely Israeli and Tel Avivian uh, drinkable idea and sort of brought them into the present with beautiful glasses that have sweet fermented fruits and spices and each glass is decorated aesthetically beautifully with flowers and herbs. Um, and we, you can learn how to make kombucha and June and kefir. And I think what's so beautiful about what Benny does is that he 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 combines the timely and the classic in a way that feels very natural. Like the things that he's doing are things that have been done since time immemorial, but somehow they feel fresh without feeling trendy. So everything he does has a sort of, I think, will have staying power. Everyone who comes to my house knows I always have seltzer in the fridge. I'm, yes. I'm not afraid I mean, to admit that is, at all. What is water? 
What is <laughs> what are, exactly? Exactly. <laughs> well, Adina, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Thank you. It was such an honor and a pleasure to be with you and to see you uh, transcontinentally. And I hope to see you in person very yeah. soon. And I hope we make our English muffin pizza book. Oh, yeah. It's on. <laughs> Schmaltzy is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Also, we're still a little new around here. Be sure to follow and rate us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get this show. Schmaltzy is produced and edited by Freetime Media. Our executive producer is Nama Sheffi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Until next time, I'm your host, Amanda Dell.